Yo, yo. Hey, everybody, just getting all the uh, guests up on stage, of course, making sure that our sound is good. Give me a thumbs up if you guys can hear me. I was uh, going kind of between a few headsets here, trying to figure it out. Good. Thank you, Ram. Thank you. I uh, hope everybody's having an amazing day. This has uh, been an insane couple of weeks here in the news cycle. Uh, I know that uh, Dave and I, we spoke pretty extensively yesterday. Josh, good to have you. Meltem, hi. Hello, everyone. Meltem, you're like our topic today. You made a whole topic out of you. <laughs> How's that? $27 trillion into crypto. It's based on a thread that you wrote. We're going to get into it in a little while. I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, you know. That's jump, just jump in the U.S., it. by the way. That's just in the U.S. Uh, I have more. I brought receipts today, so there's a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, they're going to pin, they might have already, but we're going to pin your tweet up there at the top uh, in a minute and uh, get going. Like I said, we we were like, what should we talk about today? And we're like, 27 trillion is a big number. Let's do that. And uh, so so here we are. Josh, what's up, man? How are you today? Doing well. Nice to have me on. Yeah, you were traveling pretty extensively there for a while, right? Uh, yeah, try, trying to figure out where people still have money. So on a world tour. Where is that? Yeah. <laughs> Did you figure it out? Great question. Uh, uh, like, uh, let me come back to you. Can you tell me if it's Dubai and Hong Kong? Because that seems to be where we're at right now. It, 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 it's, there's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm outside of, outside of the U.S. for digital assets right now, which is great. I think the question is, you know, obviously regulation is a piece of it. But the other question I think which is important from an institutional perspective is where are the allocators coming in from, right? Where is the, where's the capital inflowing, you know, where are sovereigns and pensions and endowments and funds of funds excited? Um, and, and I think that question is still up in the air. I mean, it, it's certainly hard for for uh, crypto companies to raise money, but I think it's even harder for crypto funds to raise money. And that's, I think, you know, one of the big impetuses that I'm watching, you know, for the next bull market is, you know, can can funds, you know, raise a lot of money to deploy into the space? I believe I'm a believer that they I'm a believer that they can certainly. So, guys, we're going to get going here. Uh, momentarily, just give a as we're getting started here, a quick market update. Uh, Bitcoin trading, I'm seeing about 30,800. I'm watching it, of course, on the Thai dashboard. Josh, once Josh got me on the Thai, dude, I don't literally even need anything else. It's unbelievable. I, I appreciate it. Not, not to, not to, you know, uh, be uh, marketing on your behalf here, but it is, it's too you're fresh. always it's literally all day, every day. But yeah, I mean, the, the market's effectively flat, uh, pretty small moves here, but it's hard to not be excited after you saw sort of that pop from the 25,000s up to about 31,000 in a week. So a uh, lot to talk about as to why that's happening and what we're going to look to. Of course, guys, just want to mention, you can see it in a pinned tweet above. We have an amazing sponsor today and partner, uh, Link2. You can look into them uh, and we're going to talk about them quite a bit later. Just wanted to give them the quick mention at the beginning because uh, someone we're really, really excited to be partnered with. But Melton, I'm going to give you the floor. We're going to pin your tweet above, um, and we're going to talk about it here because, yeah, $27 trillion just dying on the sidelines here, waiting to pour into crypto, right? Well, um, let's let's maybe just um, run run through kind of the the picture. So um, I'm crypto grandma. <laughs> I've been in this industry since early 2015. Um, and so, you know, the narrative for a very long time has been the institutions are coming. And in 2017, you know, there's going to be this wave of institutions. And again, in 2020, there was going to be a massive wave of institutions. And um, 
that wave hasn't really come yet. I think the wave has been more of a trickle. But in the last really six months, um, I think we've seen a lot of um, movement. And the interesting thing is, you know, the BlackRock news around BlackRock filing for a spot Bitcoin ETF was huge news, but there's a lot of other stuff going on. And so yesterday I was kind of sitting there and I was like, huh, you know, if I just zoom out, right, I think zooming out is very helpful. And we just look at at what's going on um, in the more traditional institutional asset management and banking world. What does the picture look like? So I put together a quick chart. I used to be a management consultant, so we love our nice little charts. So obviously BlackRock is one of the largest asset managers in the world, $9 trillion in assets under management. They have filed for a Bitcoin spot ETF that's big news. But if we look at the other largest financial institutions in the world, Fidelity, nearly $5 trillion in assets under management, they very quietly in the last month launched a full-stack crypto solution for all of the wealth managers and advisors on their platform, which is huge. Right now, they're offering Bitcoin and Ether trading and custody, and they built that all in-house themselves over the last eight years. JP Morgan is doing tokenized USD and Euro transfers. Morgan Stanley is providing their high net worth clients with access to three funds, two run by Galaxy, one run by NIDIC. Goldman is doing OTC trading for their high net worth clients with Galaxy. BNY Mellon is custodying and enabling the transfer of Bitcoin Ether using Fireblocks. We, my firm CoinShares, partners with Invesco on an ETF in Europe, and Galaxy partnering with them on this filing for an ETF in the US. We also have an equity-focused ETF in Europe with Invesco that has around 700 million assets under management. And then Bank of America is enabling Bitcoin futures trading through CME. So if we take all of those institutions together, those institutions between them, right, the seven, sorry, eight that I just named, they manage $27 trillion in assets. Now, is the entirety of this $27 trillion going to go into crypto? I don't think that's a reasonable assumption. But what you know, we've talked about a lot at my firm CoinShares, and I'm happy to share the research report link in a moment, you know, anywhere from a 1% to 4% allocation to Bitcoin. And we've primarily focused on allocation to, to Bitcoin because I do think for most investors, Bitcoin is the best understood. The Bitcoin network has been operating for over 13 years. I, I do think it's the asset that a lot of people who are a little bit more risk averse um, are, are most comfortable with. But that's not to say that over the long term, there won't be allocation to other assets. I just think for a lot of people, the starting point is Bitcoin and or Ether as well. I think there is a lot of interest in Ethereum. But in our research, we focused on, you know, in a portfolio, what is the optimal allocation to crypto? And so what we sort of found through our brilliant research team is anywhere from a 1% to 4% allocation provides optimal diversification um, benefits and sort of balances the risk and reward. And that's sort of assuming that you're rebalancing on a quarterly basis to keep your overall portfolio weight at 1% to 4%. Now, I know a lot of people in this space are probably saying, that's crazy. You know, my allocation is closer to 50 or 100%. But I think we just have to remember that, you know, we're talking about, I always say people like my dad. My dad is a very smart human, 65 years old, but he is scared of crypto. He doesn't want to use a ledger. He feels much more comfortable accessing assets through his Fidelity account. He's a client of Fidelity. He keeps his money there. And so the ability for someone like my dad to have exposure to crypto through uh, an advisor or a platform they already trust where they already manage their 
assets is a huge unlock. So I think that's one really important thing to focus on. So 27 trillion, if we look at just one to 2% of of that moving into crypto, right? That's a $500 billion uh, right there. If we see 5%, you know, that's closer to $1.2 trillion. So that's a lot of money. And um, I love what, you know, I believe it was Dave who said this, but I love what he said about, you know, it's all about the flows. One thing we look at and we publish a weekly report at CoinShares on fund flows or money flowing into structured crypto products, which are accessible on these platforms and traditional brokerages. Um, last week, we saw the biggest week of inflows in almost a year, 200 million of inflows. 90% of that was into Bitcoin products. Um, and so I think it's really important. You know, there's a lot of sentiment out there and media headlines, news, what you see on Twitter, that's sentiment. But the translation of sentiment into action is captured through flows. And so it's very important to look at where the inflows are coming from and where those pools of capital are. You know, I always think it's funny. You'll you'll look at people tweeting about assets and they're like, oh, this is going to be huge to the moon, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, I love that. But where are the flows going to come from? Who are these buyers? Where are these flows coming from? What channels are they coming through? And so what I really wanted to do here is just illustrate there is a huge amount of capital that is now going to have access. And so we're starting to see the beginnings of where some of these flows that we think will fuel the next cycle, right? If we believe in this four-year cyclical Bitcoin having drives markets theory, um, I think that, you know, we're starting to see the emergence of this pool of, of capital and it's getting connected to, to crypto. And then the last piece of this is in the last column in the chart I shared, you know, I, I talked a little bit about our firms building it themselves or are they partnering with existing crypto players. And I think that's been really interesting to see as well. You know, the, the primary partners here are the Coinbases, the Galaxies, the Nidigs, the CoinShares, the Fireblocks of the world. And I think that's very promising as well because firms are, are partnering with crypto native institutions. And I do believe that many crypto native institutions are now too big to be acquired by traditional financial services firms. And so it's very exciting sort of thinking about a future where over the next three to five years, we could see more publicly listed crypto companies. Um, we at CoinShares are publicly listed. Coinbase is as well. Obviously, Galaxy as well is as well. Um, and there are a small handful of others, but we really don't have a lot of publicly listed crypto firms. And so I'm very excited that we'll see more crypto firms going public potentially and becoming larger financial institutions. So I'll pause right there, but I think this is all very interesting. And then maybe later we can also discuss the international picture because obviously the U.S. is a shape market. But if we look at the top 15 banks in the world by assets under management, only two of those banks are in the U.S. The majority of them are in China and outside the U.S. And so it might just be fun to sort of postulate what the picture globally might look like. But I'll pause there. I know I've talked quite a bit. No, that was great. And just since we do break news here, and guys, we will vet this, obviously, but it is being reported just in 4.2 trillion asset manager Fidelity to file for spot Bitcoin ETF. That rumor was circulating already over the last two weeks. I think that rumor started circulating actually the minute that Black yeah. uh, but, filed. But Scott, we have to remember Fidelity already filed for a Bitcoin ETF, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. Yep. So it's just a refiling, right? And um, I think, you know, I'm optimistic. Vanguard, by they the way. Rejected. Yeah, they, everyone rejected. got rejected, right? Yeah. But Vanguard is like the big daddy here, right? So Vanguard, Schwab, those are the, uh, so the, in order of AUM, obviously BlackRock's first with 10, close to 10 trillion. Then we have, um, 
uh, Vanguard with $7 trillion. And what's cool about Vanguard is Vanguard is very focused on low-cost products, right? And a lot of 401k plans and sort of retirement plans are run through Vanguard. Vanguard's a big one. Schwab's a big one. Those are the two I want to watch. And then Fidelity is fourth on that list with um, about $5 trillion, I believe, 4 to $5 trillion. Yeah, and people, I mean, listen, the, the Fidelity news, it was conjecture, of course. But like you said, they'd filed before, and everybody who watches Fidelity knows they've been in the space for longer than any other institution. I mean, they're in your eight, nine years already. They've been Bitcoin mining since 2015. I mean, if there's any institution that sort of led the charge here, it's been them. I mean, you said you're you're a crypto grandma. Vinny, does that make you crypto grandpa? I think you've been a lot around just as long. I mean, what do you make of what uh, Meltem just laid out? Hey, I was going, yeah, I'm just maybe about two years more than Meltem. Hey, Meltem, good chatting. Um, you, you know, I, I agree with Meltem. I just, I'm not sure what the time frame it's going to look like. Is that, that money seeps into the economy over a period of time. It sounds like it's all going to go in you know, you know, in one go. So the real question is like, what's the ramp time for the allocation to get to a trillion dollars? Is it a year? Is it two years? We also have the having approaching as well. So that takes some self pressure off. And so the, the balance between money coming in, uh, less, you know, less available for sale through the miners, um, those two have to be offset. And, and, and obviously it's a, it's a time frame. But I think I'm pretty bullish on Bitcoin right now. I think Bitcoin is probably going to hit to all time highs in the next two years, uh, if not sooner. But um, yeah, it's really the time function. Oh, wait, um, Zinni, I want to tell a quick Vinny anecdote. So Vinny and I have known, e- known each other, pardon, for eight years now. I've had the pleasure of working with Vinny. Um, a funny story. Back in 2015, I remember Vinny called me in like, June of 2015, I think. Vinny, do you remember this? You called me and you were like, hey, Gemini had actually filed for a spot Bitcoin ETF. And Vinny, you were so convinced that they were going to get it. Maybe it was 2016. But I just remember, Vinny, um, you and I like had this crazy phone call where we really thought Gemini was going to get approval for their spot ETF. So that's how long we've been talking about this. It's been seven freaking years. So then you're obviously jaded though. So what do you, where do you put the lens now as time, having seen it so many times? Meltem, my, my memory does, serves me correctly. I, I remember, I remember we chatting about it and I was, I was, I was skeptical about them getting it. I was like, I was excited. I was like, this is awesome, but these are the problems. And then I wrote a blog post after it, which is the blog post is still up where I just said that it was 20, early 2017, March, and I can go look it up. But I literally said that there's no ETF coming. I was doing very, well, so, so this is actually, so this is actually, the, no, 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 look, I don't need to cage match with Vinny. Um, I think he would demolish me. But um, I think one of the interesting things, right, is what's going to happen here. Like the SEC is in a bit of a pickle because um, this week, a, a double levered Bitcoin ETF uh, launched. Obviously, we have the Beto product from uh, ProShares about a billion in AUM, but that's based on the CME Bitcoin futures, which obviously is not a great grayscale, obviously not great trading at a discount and trade a premium. Like we have all these wonky products out there that are really not good for consumers, right? That are really not good for retail investors or any investors, frankly, because there's a lot of inefficiencies in them. So the SEC is in a bit of a pickle. If they approve the BlackRock ETF, right, then it's definitely going to look like collusion. We all know BlackRock very close to the Biden administration. So if they prove the BlackRock ETF, it's kind of going to validate all of the tinfoil hat theories out there, right? And 
speculation about corruption within the SEC. And if they don't approve it, right, we're in the situation we've been in for, you know, eight years now, where we continue to have no uh, efficient uh, structures for people to access Bitcoin in like this traditional product wrapper. So I do think the SEC is in a bit of a pickle and maybe Vinny, you have thoughts on this, but they're kind of in a weird oh, category too. I, I agree. No, no, I think the door's been open now. Like, I was skeptical up to the point where Gary Ginsburg said, oh, it's not a security, it's, you know, whatever, commodity, whatever you want to call it, but it's done. The door's been open. Like, now everyone's just running through the door. So I don't think there's any, they, they can walk this back at all. And so I think it's inevitable. It's just a matter of time right now. Joey, I'd love to get you involved in this conversation. You're pretty close to it. What do you think are the odds here, and what do you think the importance of all these filings is? Yeah, I, I think the odds are pretty high in Malzu. Um, historically, I've been super bearish on on all these Bitcoin ETF filings, but I think you know at, at this point, like I would, I would like handicap it at you know something like 70 percent. I just think that the players who have kind of you know filed this time, refiled or whatever. Um, are kind of much more serious uh, in, than than in the past, and then also I, I just don't think there's really any credible reason at this point to say no to it. Um, I, you know that's that's sort of my view there. Right, but it's not a credible reason per se, but it's the same reason they would have given before, right? So I, I think the the point is it was never a credible reason. I think we could argue maybe. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Um, you know, I, I've always thought that they should have approved them. Um, but, but I think if you kind of look at these recent applications, they they're they're pretty kind of ironclad. Um, you know, I think I think I agree. You know, Gensler, of course, they could you know claim some reason to to not approve them. But I just think given kind of the number of institutions and kind of like the caliber of people who are who are filing this time around, I just think it's pretty likely that that, that they do actually get approved this time. Josh, I saw you lift your mic. Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing is. You know, they can't they can't just go and approve BlackRock and not approve everyone else, especially all the other asset managers that filed before. Right. That would be pretty bullshit because there are I mean, like Van Eck, you know, had, had already filed before many times. Right. And that's still a large asset manager. Right. So I think, you know, if they're going to go and approve, everything has to get approved right at the same time. So, uh, you know, you can't just say like there, there's nothing at least from what I've seen, materially different around BlackRock's ETF filing than anyone else, except for the fact that it says BlackRock's name. They're they're claiming that the difference is the surveillance sharing agreement with NASDAQ, but Kathy Wood very quickly came out and said, listen, anybody can add that provision to theirs. And oh, by the way, we're actually in line first. So, right. Yeah, they yeah, they and, very clearly have to skip arc. And I mean, Gemini has been using nasdaq or was at least using nasdaq smarts for five or six or seven years and they you know the winklevoss twins applied for an etf years i mean there was an announcement of them using nasdaq smarts i don't know maybe 2016 2017 so that that's not necessarily new yeah i think we all agree it's the name go ahead joe oh. i saw you lift your mic and then Dave. yeah i was gonna say i think i think the one new thing this time is that binance us isn't really a player anymore in in the u.s markets and um I, I think like my kind of like personal view is just that I think the SEC kind of wanted them out before they'd approve a, a Bitcoin ETF. That's just my my kind of poker read there. Go ahead, Dave. I don't disagree. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a couple things here. The first is I think it's 
fairly likely that if they approve BlackRock, they're going to have to approve others, some of others. But there is some differences. Uh, their focus on Coinbase, while amusing considering it was one week after the Coinbase suit was filed by the SEC, is different. Um, the, the whole notion of market of substantial size, Coinbase is almost twice as big as the next largest U.S. competitor and close to 20 times more volume uh, than Gemini. And so arguably Gemini doesn't qualify for that. So whether they have NASDAQ smarts or not, it, it doesn't matter. And, and I don't think it's about NASDAQ smarts vis-a-vis uh, Solidus Labs, a platform, Aventus platform. I think a lot of these exchanges are doing surveillance. The key here is the willingness to share that information. And I think that that makes it. And the, the other big deal is what Melton said before, which is who is going to actually invest? Who is the target? I mean, the, at post FTX, when you talk to financial advisors, you know, so-called normies, <laughs> as people refer to them, you know, in crypto town hall, uh, my brother's a normie, although he follows this stuff. Uh, the fact is, is he tells me that clients were, were spooked by FTX for obvious reasons, don't want to get their coins stolen. And let's be, let's be blunt. If you put your money in a BlackRock ETF, I think every client's figures that no matter what happens, they're going to be made whole. And that may not be the same with a lot of the others that are filing. And I think that that's kind of a bigger deal. I mean, I think that the thing about BlackRock's filing is about trust and it's about client trust in the system and the ability to actually overcome what we ha what happened last year. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I want to focus. I think we've all kind of talked the uh, idea that the BlackRock ETF could or could not get approved uh, pretty much to death. But I want to go back to what it really means if it is. I mean, Melton laid out the case, obviously, for this $27 trillion. That's not specific to a BlackRock ETF itself. But let's say that BlackRock ETF gets approved in two weeks. What do we see for the subsequent month after that? Because uh, I think there's an expectation we would see this massive flood of money. And as Meltem's point out, every time we've had an expectation of a massive flood of money, we haven't generally seen it. Can I just uh, maybe... Oh, sorry, Dave, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, my my bet is a mass speculative wave that then uh, at least half of that retraces because the money is, is a very long-term trickle, then a flow, then a flood. Uh, that could take years to materialize because it, it, it's been, it's necessary, but hardly sufficient to bring all the money in. Yeah, I mean, BITO did get a billion, basically, I think, in the first two days or something when they launched the futures ETF. So at least at that time, there was an appetite for it. But Meltem, then Josh, please. Yeah, so, um, so Dave, I, I agree. Um, I do think there will be some interest. But I think one thing to just sort of keep in mind is um, for people who are Really, so so one thing we kind of think about at CoinShares, right, as as asset managers and an investment firm, is there's sort of a a customer journey that people go through, um, that investors go through when they're thinking about crypto. So sort of at the top of the funnel is education, which is people learning about crypto, people learning about Bitcoin. Um, once people go through the education journey, they kind of go through the next step, which is okay. I want to look at my different options, right? So there are structured products which are offered by the Black Rocks and, and Vanguards of the world, Validates of the world. There's um, direct investing. Um, there's you know active trading through like what we would typically see as a brokerage account, like an E-Trade sort of Schwab equivalent. Um, and then there's sort of sort of different ways to get exposure. Um, I think the one thing I sort of question is for people who've already sort of made their way through the education funnel. Who have looked at the options and then decided to take action, 
there are already a lot of different ways for them to get access, right? Coinbase, um, I don't recall the latest number, but I think they have something like 30 million accounts. Um, you know, we have the SoFis of the world, we have the Robinhoods of the world. So I don't necessarily think that there is a massive audience out there who is like, oh my God, I have no idea how to get exposure to Bitcoin. And so now that I have one, I put capital in it. I think there's a new education journey that's going to start. And I do think Bitcoin is starting to be more legitimized. I mean, the fact that Jay Powell, you know, in his latest hearing, talks about the fact that cryptocurrencies have staying power. He thinks they're, they're relevant and worthwhile. That I think was huge affirmation. But I think it takes some time to go that through that journey. Um, so that's number one. So I don't think it's like, okay, we have these ETFs launching and all of a sudden, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars of inflow. I do think that process, that journey, that customer journey, that investor journey takes time. And and by the way, the spaces and everyone who's in this industry and people on, on Twitter, people writing and posting podcasts, like we are all a part of helping people through that education journey and through that funnel. Um, the second piece I just quickly want to talk about is to me, the really big opportunity is really not any one manager in particular, but it's a retirement funds, retirement money. Retirement money is very sticky, right? Retail money, spot money, not sticky. Retirement money, very, very sticky. Because once money goes into your 401k or your IRA, it's there for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. People are make and with lifespans extending, right? With social security benefits, like, being challenged, I think that more and more people are starting to recognize participating in the market, planning for retirement, investing their their retirement funds actively is going to become more important, particularly now that we've seen rates rising, sort of the 60-40 portfolio construction theory, you know, may not be as relevant going forward. You might have to kind of move a little further out on the risk curve to get those returns. So today in the United States, there's $10 trillion of assets and defined contribution plans. Um, and that's a lot of money. Total retirement assets in the U.S. are $35 trillion. A lot of money. It's in different places. But that, to me, is the big opportunity. If we can work to get crypto into retirement accounts, that, in my view, is going to be the big unlock. Because the day-to-day volatility of, of Bitcoin is the price of the investment opportunity. That volatility will likely go down over time, just as it did with gold and other sort of emerging asset classes. But what's really interesting to me, that $35 trillion in U.S. retirement assets that people tend to allocate long term, you don't really day trade in your retirement account, right? You kind of set it and forget it. That's exactly. the holy grail. So that's what we're not talking about. Um, and that's really where I think the big opportunity is, especially in the U.S. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, passively investing in your IRA if you're a Bitcoiner from the beginning is that's the unlock because that's where people are going to dollar cost average for 30 years. Which, by the way, I've been doing um, through like not an advertisement, but um, through choice. So we invested yeah, choice, as my former business self, partner. Self-directed. Right yeah, yeah, self-directed. And by the yep. way, um, that self-directed IRA, I custody my Bitcoin with CASA, self-custody which I think is really cool, right? Because they're now starting to see this hybrid sort of phone. I have the keys. Exactly, I have my own keys. So there's a lot of really cool stuff that's happening. It's still quite small scale. But as that starts to ramp up, like that is what I'm excited about, particularly as we see more millennials, more, you know, Gen, Gen Z, um, sort of starting to invest for retirement. So I'll pause there, but very exciting. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah, I well, agree. I agree. I agree with Meltem on the retirement uh, 
piece entirely. Um, I would add, though, you know, BlackRock is not going to go out and launch this product unless they have demand, right? And the same thing goes with Aladdin, right? Aladdin's got, what, 100 or 120 customers, which, you know, collectively manage $100 trillion. They're not going to go and, and launch Bitcoin trading through Aladdin or launch ETF unless they have some customer demand. There's, there's potential reputational risk, right? And so, you know, they obviously have, they have demand associated with it, which is why they're doing it. And the question is, you know, what happens to Bitcoin immediately after? And I think, you know, Dave hit the nail on the head. I think you see a tremendous amount of upwards price movement immediately and, and, and probably some retracement. But I think, you know, the reason that a lot of institutions are on the sideline right now is, you know, you know, for, for, for a while, Bitcoin was very correlated to the NASDAQ. Uh, and, you know, the the excitement around crypto as an asset class partially was because it is it was uncorrelated or, you know, kind of the, the narrative as, as Bitcoin is digital gold. Right now, Bitcoin's not correlated to the NASDAQ. It's not correlated to gold. It's not correlated to the S&P, which I think is already from speaking to large hedge funds, getting them very excited, the ability to, you know, introduce a totally uncorrelated asset that combined with, you know, I think the speculation that comes from, you know, Bitcoin ETF launching, if it does happen you know, all the new liquidity that brings, I think that's going to actually bring a ton of institutions to the space, even if it takes a while for large allocators to move into crypto. I think that does bring kind of a, a you know, it, it could set forth, a, you know, at least a temporary bull market, you know, with with, with a, now a lot more, you know, speculators coming to the space, a lot more liquidity. So we have to assume there that basically BlackRock has a whole bunch of institutions already committed and lined up to buy this thing because they're not going to just throw it on the market and hope that a few retail, you know, uh, customers in Omaha, Nebraska decide to throw it in there. All right. All right. Yeah. I mean, I'd be curious what the smallest ETF that BlackRock has is. I mean, I'm sure there are some that are relatively small as they have thousands, but, you know, I think they, they have to view this as, you know, at least being a, a multi-billion dollar product. Agreed. Joe, go ahead. Hey, yeah. So I just wanted to comment on a couple of things. With respect to the demand, uh, a really strong trusted source of mine let me know uh, after the first, you know, that first business week ended, there was already single digit billions of demand for the BlackRock ETF, um, according to him. And uh, that's, I think, pretty material. I think that would actually be in the tens of billions. If you look at the gold ETF when it first launched, there were tens of billions of um, demand in the product in the early days and the fact that there's already single digit billions demand for the product itself having not even been approved is pretty remarkable i think the other thing i'll mention is is that i think there was i joined a little bit late because it's a bit earlier on the west coast but um one of the topics that you guys were discussing was you know gemini's uh etf uh submission and some of the characteristics associated with that. I think it's important to distinguish the difference between the SSA agreement that Gemini was putting forth and the one that BlackRock's putting forth. The SSA for, uh, that's the surveillance sharing agreement that Gemini put forth was actually with BATS, uh, the BATS exchange, uh, and not NASDAQ. So there is a little bit of a delineation there. And it's important because NASDAQ is a regulated entity of of significant size. Uh, But more importantly, the, the SEC... Um, said the Gemini SSA didn't meet the SEC's criteria because it's neither a market of significant size nor is it regulated. And I think this is a, a key thing to understand here is that the SEC has denied previous spot Bitcoin ETFs because the exchanges uh, were not regulated 
and they were of significant size. And so the question is, is does the SEC view Coinbase as an exchange of significant size given its involvement in the BlackRock ETF? And currently, Coinbase has about a little over 6% global market share with respect to spot Bitcoin trading volumes. Binance obviously has about 50, greater than 50%. But in the US, uh, if, you, if, you, if you scope it to the US, Coinbase actually has about a 76% market share. So the question is, is does the SEC interpret it at a, at a U.S. level or at, at a global level? And BlockRack obviously thinks so, right? Because they wouldn't have chose Coinbase as the custodian under the market if they didn't believe that that was enough to get, get approved. The SEC might have a different take on that, but yeah. BlackRock f- clearly believes so. Yeah, and I mean, look, like anything could happen. You know, BlackRock has a 99.8% win rate. Everybody knows this at this point with ETF filings. Um, I find it incredibly ironic that they would file for a spot ETF a week after or nine days after a lawsuit was filed with the SEC against Coinbase. Ultimately, that lawsuit, I think, is going to be settled. So there is the potential that it's kind of a nothing burger with respect to BlackRock. But that is pretty strong signaling if BlackRock is going to select the only publicly traded uh, and what we would put in air quotes regulated US-based exchange uh, for uh, for the custody of, of their ETF product if, if it wasn't actually um, there, if there wasn't actually a reasonable chance that it actually gets approved. Wild timing that uh, the SEC goes after Coinbase on a Tuesday and by you know, a week later talking about a BlackRock ETF that's uh, using, utilizing Coinbase. David, go ahead. So I just want to say, you know, what Melton was saying about like the retirement accounts and that what you guys are really talking about is financial advisors in the U.S. who are practicing under the Investment Act and the, and the Advisors Act. We're going to, for the first time in crypto, have financial advisors who have a fiduciary responsibility to their clients who are advising, recommending, and putting crypto into their accounts. That is going to be a yet another spigot that opens up that's not currently available. But it also would give the government some feeling of comfort that there are professionals who are going to be responsible to their clients for these investments. And for lawyers like me, we're going to salivate for people who are responsible for evaluating, you know, if this had been, if the ICO craze had happened and your financial advisor puts you in 95% into ICOs that were all fraudulent and fake, you'd be able to recover against your financial advisors. If this money comes from retirement accounts, those retirement accounts and those advisors have fiduciary duties to their clients to be careful about what investments they put their money into while the floodgate of new money that would open up would be fantastic, it would also be fantastic to be able to rely on the professionals who are providing you this advice that if something goes wrong, you have a gatekeeper who would bear some responsibility. I think those are two not often discussed things about getting mom and dad and grandma and grandpa on mainstream involved. It's going to be a fantastic runway from both in opening up a source of new funds and for opening up a source of responsibility for people who advise you to go into these investments. Oh my God, David, you're going to have so many more people to see. Exactly. <laughs> so guys don't know, but Dave, David's a lawyer, right? So uh, we could take everything through through that lens uh, when he talks, but it, it is true. I mean, they would, you would, they would have the responsibility, and that also means that they are just going to have to start actually taking it seriously and take a look, to your point, right? Right now, they can be completely dismissive of the asset class. Well, they are completely dismissive of the asset class because almost none of these financial institutions allow their uh, investment advisors to sell you crypto directly. So if all of a sudden we're going to be able to get into 
mainstream investments and crypto being held in custody at, you know, Fidelity, all of these financial advisors are going to have a responsibility for managing your account. They charge you to manage your account. All these retirement, all these billion dollar retirement funds, you know, all the old class actions used to be the class action lawyers would seek out all of the pension funds to file their class actions when the stock went bad. We're going to see the same thing in crypto. They're going to move billions and billions, if not trillions into the system. But all of a sudden, they're going to bear a responsibility for the uh, assets they buy. And if they're buying crypto and they're buying investments, you know, think of if someone had done it. It wasn't Sequoia who had done the investment into FTX, but it was the California Teachers Pension Fund who had done the investment into FTX. Those uh, investments would leave those advisors susceptible to claims from their retirees under the ERISA Act. It's just going to be it's going to be a great uh, day when the professional advisors can allow for the investments. And I think it's going to give the government, the regulators, some mechanism of relief that there are going to be all these people now responsible to Main Street investors. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge narrative, or at least tin hat slight theory, is that Gensler or the SEC will just approve this and wipe their hands of it and say, see, guys, we did something. We did something positive. Bitcoin ETF, here you go. Offload some of the responsibility and then in the future be more dismissive of the rest of the market. I mean, does anyone think that that's what's happening here? I keep hearing it over and over and over again. If not, then we can uh, go ahead and, and reset here. Uh, because actually I do want to talk about next the uh, GBTC discount. But before we do that, I want to definitely give a shout out to the sponsor uh, pinned up in the nest. Uh, Link to the private investing made simple. Invest in mid to late stage startups at affordable minimums with Link to. And you can check that out, like I said, in the pinned tweet in the nest above. And we're going to definitely talk to them uh, at the end. What they're doing is absolutely awesome uh, because you know how difficult it is for people, especially in the United States, to be able to invest in private equity. But I want to talk about this GBTC discount down to almost 30%. I think it was 44% two weeks ago. Is this because people think that Grayscale is now going to get an ETF approval because of BlackRock? What's going on here? Why do you think that this is seeing so much volume and and why we're seeing this sort of discount collapse? Anyone can feel free to jump in. I feel like that's a rhetorical question. I think the answer is, <laughs> yes, this is a short answer, is people, people view it as if BlackRock believes they're going to get approved, then Grayscale can get approved and, and that discount will go away. And you know, people people believe that they can, you know, purchase Bitcoin at a discount, right? Whether or not that's the case. That that's So so is that the case though? I mean, does this, it seems like the Grayscale case is very different from uh, what we're talking about here with BlackRock. I mean, this is being litigated right now. Well, I, I, I see Meltem unmuted and she's, you know, being formal at DCG, she probably has a good opinion on this, but I, I uh, yeah, I mean, look, the thing is, if, if Grayscale wanted to offer redemptions today, they could do it. They're just not. And did you see, I, I'm going to pin it up when, when I find it, but I believe that GBTC and EP both, both have a record quarter uh, in earnings. <laughs> oh, for, for Grayscale, you mean? Yeah, for Grayscale, that this is yeah. like the the best quarter for them for uh, for earnings for both of those products. Even though, like you just said, you can't even redeem. Makes sense. Two two percent of you know fifty uh, fifty billion in AUM is a is a very large number. Whatever they're whatever they're taking their rate, and it's all locked. It's all locked in yeah. there. To your point, go ahead, Meltem. Well, um, I I think again, just not a lot to add, and I haven't been at DCG in five years, so I have no special insight of any kind. 
I just think the the grayscale narrative. So I myself have tried to trade the grayscale premium and, and discount. And it's tricky, right? I recall when the discount went to 30%, I added some to my portfolio, and then I went to 45%. I think um, one thing, you know, with these um, one-way trusts is, you know, it's really a question of supply and demand. And trusts can trade at a discount, a massive discount for a very long time. I believe there's one trust out there that's currently trading at a 92% discount. So I just want to caution people that, you know, that the fact that there is now potentially these new avenues opening up that allow both creation and redemption and will trade at NAV where the net asset value of the underlying, i.e. the price of Bitcoin, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily have any implications for Grayscale. The other thing I just sort of question, you know, if I had a cash cow business that was printing money on Bitcoin and other crypto assets under management that could just remain there in perpetuity, there's really not a whole lot of incentive for me to allow people to redeem, especially when my expense ratio is 2.5% yeah. and other people, sorry, my um, fee is 2.5%. And, you know, there are other products out there in the US market, in the Canadian market, in the European market, 95 basis points, 100 basis points, 125 basis points. So if you have, you know, I believe in the Bitcoin products, they have 26 billion in AUM. If you have 26 billion in assets that have 250 basis points, take, there's zero incentive to allow redemption. So I just encourage people to be cautious because the discount- Yes, there's zero there's zero incentive for redemptions, but then it makes you kind of scratch your head. I'm being a bit facetious, but that they're trying to convert to an ETF where that will com collapse completely. Look, I, I can't read into people's minds, but I just want to caution people, you know, that um, divergence or convergence, I think is a, a tricky one. It does seem to move based on different news. But if BlackRock gets an ETF, there's no guarantee that Grayscale, you know, will be able to convert, you know. So I do think it's just, it's a tough one to, to trade right now. It's very sentiment driven. But again, that structural sort of challenge um, of there not being any redemptions allowed, that's not going to change if BlackRock gets a, an ETF or someone else gets an ETF. That's really a Grayscale specific decision. So I just want to note that's of caution. What I thought. Yeah, no, that's gosh. exactly what I was trying to hint at at the beginning. It's not like some instant slam dunk that just because BlackRock gets approved, that's good for Grayscale. Josh, did you have something to add? I was just going to add the fact that not only is it a 2.5% management fee, it's 2.5% management fee on NAV. So the product is trading well below NAV, and then you're getting charged 2.5% on NAV. So it's an extraordinarily expensive product. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, to your point, you know, look, if they convert to an ETF, the ETF game is really... You know, look, GLD one, right? It's 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 a game of, you know, there'll be one or two really big winners, and Grayscale has to believe that they become one of those really big winners, and the AUM grows significantly, right? That's kind of the bet that they have to be making. But Josh, like if we see BlackRock get approved, and then we see nine more of these get approved, uh, what will differ? I mean, is it literally just going to be fees that differentiate, or the marketing? I mean, is it is it going to be a, a price? You know, a basically a race to the bottom of who can have the less least bips? You know, uh, fee. I'm not. I'm not an ETF expert. I, I, it sounds like there are people on the, the call that that understand ETFs better than I do. But but remember, Grayscale filed for the ETF before BlackRock did. So you know maybe they they have a change in perspective since the BlackRock. Go ahead, Dave. Yeah, I mean with uh, the there's, there's a few things. There's first of all, there's trust. You know who do you use? Whatever. Who do you have relationships with? Which platforms allow? Uh, uh, 
JTETFs. There's an enormous amount of marketing that goes in. Obviously, the spider. Hey, Dave, you're having a bad connection. Uh, so if you could fix that, please. And we're going to move to Joe. Joe, go ahead. I saw you lifted your mic. Yeah, hey, I, I uh, uh, was lost my speaking ability there for a second. And I was going to comment um, before we moved on from the BlackRock ETF discussion, but it's actually relevant to the GPTC trade idea. And I, I also vehemently agree with my friend Meltem on this. Be very careful. Uh, discounts can always go significantly lower. And the outcome of the discount uh you know premium trade is is effectively a digital option it's either it happens or it doesn't and so pricing that is challenging and i've seen so many people and funds completely blow up on this trade so i would i would heed caution on that however yeah like block five <laughs> i mean i'll yeah t t i won't name names but uh you can kind of i will and Arrows, yeah, three arrows, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just saw actually, I literally just saw. I'm going to go right back to you, Joe, but I, I'm trying to find it now. I just saw breaking news come through uh, from Zero Hedge. Three arrows liquidators seek 1.3 billion from funds founders. Good time. Oh, three arrows capital. Go, go ahead. Good timing. So the, the point I wanted to make that's relevant to the GBTC trade is is what we were I think discussing previously as to whether or not Gensler like what does he approve? Does he approve only the BlackRock ETF or does he approve all of them uh, or most of them? And and my my source in DC tells me that this is a really difficult political challenge to navigate, and he has to make a political calculation here. On the one hand, the Republicans are actually arguably pro-crypto, you know, I would say in a general sense relative to the Democratic Party. However, there are members of the Republican Party that are anti-BlackRock because they see BlackRock getting special treatment. And so Gensler has to make a political calculation on his way out saying, yes, and I agree with you, Scott. Hey, I did something, you know, I, I kind of fucked up. I didn't protect investors. Now I'm going to, you know, cover my ass and do some retroactive after the fact CYA uh, but hey, I approve a Bitcoin ETF. Well, the question is, is he, does he approve the BlackRock one or multitude of them? And if he makes the political cal calculation saying, I'm going to approve most of them or all of them, it likely has to do with the fact that this special treatment view that a lot of Republicans currently have is not necessarily favorable from a political standpoint. That factors, I think, into the uh, GBDC trade, where in the case that a multitude of these spot ETF gets approved, then there's a potential that you can start to see at least, uh, you know, perceptions, reality for traders. They may actually start to bid GBTC up in the anticipation that it actually happens. But again, I would caution folks, and it's not financial advice whatsoever, but this is a digital option. This is a digital outcome of what's going to happen with the GBTC trade. And it has a lot to do with Gensler's political calculation. Yeah, just I agree. Just back to that breaking news. It's now on Bloomberg and not just Zero Hedge. I'll try to find a tweet for it. But three arrows liquidators seek one point three billion from funds founders. Liquidators say founders incurred debt when firm was insolvent. Yikes. Losses are part of three billion owed to three arrows creditors. Some of that's to me through Voyager, so they can go ahead and get busy uh raise, raising that money. Absolutely. We're gonna I think we're gonna pivot here a bit to topics. Speaking of uh three arrows capital and of course all of the insolvencies and contagion of last year, one of the big narratives that we're seeing right now is that we're going to see this. Well, we've obviously been seeing a massive sell-off in uh certain altcoins, especially those that have been named in the SEC uh enforcement actions. And then 
even more specifically, really Solana, Cardano, Matic, which we're seeing are going to be sold off by Celsius, likely uh, the first week of July, and Robinhood as soon as today. Uh, Joey, d- does any of these infor- SEC like enforcement actions naming these coins, does it change your opinion of any of those specific projects at all, or is it just kind of being shrugged off at this point? Yeah, I think I think from the market's perspective, it's it's sort of being shrugged off. Um, you know, the SEC kind of really mentioned me that's with Bitcoin in, in a lawsuit for your successor, but you know, that doesn't doesn't make it a security. Um, you know, they still have to argue that and, and prove that to the courts. Um and then I think from the seat where I sit, you know, I'm investing very early stage, um, you know, when things are basically in the private markets for the most part. And so you know, I, th- I think like sort of the regulatory environment is going to look completely different, you know, five years from now when a lot of these things are are live and trading. But is it shaking or changing the way that you will invest in those early stage project projects now because there's a potential fear that they won't be able to operate in the United States or that they could be doing something now that would be retroactively deemed uncompliant or legal, anything like that? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a lot of firms that I know that are you know, basically investing, um, you know, mostly offshore, non-US. I, I think for us, we just want to back kind of the best founders. And so it absolutely really can't argue at all whether we're willing to invest in the US or not. Um, you know, I think like over the short term, Congress probably doesn't pass any legislation around crypto, but, you know, over a five to 10 year horizon, they probably actually do. Um, and so in general, you know, we're not too caught up over kind of the, the regulatory minutiae especially when you're investing in like a seed ground or something new. So I, I haven't changed our view from, you know, U.S. versus offshore. Melton, does it change your view at all? I mean, I know that you invest early in quite a few things. Uh, nope. I think Joey is is spot on. And, um, you know, I think that um, the environment is shifting. I do, you know, we're going to get a new administration as well. Um, and at the end of the day, the U.S. is still, by and large, um, the, the largest and sort of most robust capital market in the world. So I think it's just a matter of time. The pendulum sort of shifts. But I think over the long run, which is, you know, what I'm focused on and Joey's been in the space in a, a lot very long time. I've been in the space a very long time. Um, you know, it's up and down, sentiment shifts, but I'm not concerned. It's inevitable. There's, things like- actually, sorry, there's a great quote. Um, I believe it's attributed to Winston Churchill. And it's, I think America will do the right thing only after they've exhausted all the other options. <laughs> I think that's kind of the situation we're in now. You know, um, it's too late to put those back in the box. It's too late to stop it. And so I think um, we'll have to sort of adapt. Uh, so I'm, I'm very optimistic. But there could be a lot of short-term pain, right? If- so you sort of have to be prepared. Yeah, I mean, if it's too late, exactly. I mean, if it's too late to put it back in the box, doesn't that kind of concern you that we're going to be so far behind because it is moving forward so fast elsewhere that it'll be too late to catch up by the time we do get anything? I mean, we talk about maybe we'll get legislation in three years, five years regulation. I mean, that's that's a 4,000 years. Look, I think the speed of crypto is sometimes very much overstated when it comes to new things launching um, and and new developments from like technical perspective and from cultural and social trends. Absolutely, crypto moves quickly. But if we look at how long it takes to build companies, how long it takes to build narratives, how long it takes for these things to sort of permeate into popular culture and into traditional finance, like that takes 
five, seven years, if not uh, decades. And so I just think sometimes in crypto, we have this belief that things move so incredibly fast. But as I alluded to earlier, you know, when I mentioned Vinny and I having this discussion about an ETF in, in 2017, um, in reality, I think the arc of progress, the arc of time moves much more slowly. And so uh, to me, you know, it is not a concern. We're still talking about the same things we were talking about seven, eight years ago. We're still working on those things. So I don't think um, that pace is necessarily matched. Um, like the pace of innovation is not necessarily matched by the pace of actual meaningful, sizable, and more importantly, sustainable uh, progress. A lot of the stuff we see in the crypto space, right? It like explodes exponentially, then it sort of declines, some things just die forever. And then there are very few things that sort of survive and build meaningful traction. Okay, so that that that's a, that's a great segue to my next question, because you're kind of alluding to these, I, we can call them bubbles or sort of hype cycles that we have, uh, metaverse fall and NFT summer and DeFi summer and, and all these, what are the next narratives that could drive the the, the next potential bull market? Oh, I think um, with AI and just the broader demand for high-performance compute, I think there are a lot of really interesting things happening around just compute generally and distributed compute, uh, like resource sharing, stuff like Render, but new models on that. There's a few projects working on distributed sort of GPU networks for AI and LLMs, large language models. Um, I think one interesting trend is quote-unquote RWAs or real-world assets and the tokenization of things like yield products, credit products, um, which effectively I think are a continuation of the security tokens narrative, but focused on you know assets that traditionally haven't been put on chain. I also think there's a big emerging narrative around DPIN or decentralized physical infrastructure networks that's sort of been driven by or renewed interest in investing in physical infrastructure, whether that's electrification, whether that's connectivity, um, whether that's you know, energy. I think there are a couple of cool projects in, in the energy space. I invested in one called Daylight, um, formerly known as React Network. So I just think there's um, a lot happening that's trying to bridge the gap between things that are purely physical in nature and apart and purely digital in nature, which is where crypto has historically been, as everything's digitally native and fully on chain. And now I think we're starting to see people looking at opportunities to take sort of these distributed, permissionless, open protocols that are imbued with a native asset to start to connect back to the physical world. And, you know, there's $54 trillion of infrastructure investment that needs to happen over the next 10 years, right, around the world as part of the broader like movement to digitization, more digital economies. So I think that's all very exciting. Um, and then the last note I'll just add, and I see Joe raising your hand. I know he's a great investor as well, so I'm sure he'll have a good perspective. But the last area I'm Yeah, we're gonna go Yeah, the last area I think, sorry, is, is really interesting is um uh proving like CK proofs and just more implementations of of privacy. Historically, this view that everything on chain should be public, I think is a little bit challenging as we start to delve into newer use cases. And so I do think um this idea of proving and the utilization of zero knowledge proofs and a wide range of applications is uh, really going to, to blossom. So I've been tracking that closely and very excited about that. Yeah, we're going to go around the horn here. Go ahead, Joe. Yeah, uh, I, I agree basically with everything Melton said, and she covered almost everything except for the one thing that I did want to bring up. Um, I just had my annual LP meeting with my investors in my fund last week, and this was a topic of discussion is, you know, a lot of folks tend to ask me like, 
Joe, what is the killer app for crypto? You know, where's our chat GPT moment? And I kind of framed the answer in a different, through a, through a different lens is that it's not necessarily about just a specific application, but I actually think that the, the next big, you know, step function, uh, improvement in, uh, user adoption and overall experience is going to be driven by mobile. And so if you look back, you know, call it 13, 14 years, we saw the launch of the iPhone and Android and what ended up happening with software developers is they actually had an entirely new form factor to develop applications for, right? So for the longest time, you had a laptop or you had you know a PC with a QWERTY keyboard and a mouse and a monitor, and it was stationary, it didn't move. Then all of a sudden, you have this fat, flat piece of glass with GPS, camera, accelerometer uh, that you can take effectively anywhere. Uh, and, the, and of course, the, the screen is much, much smaller, right? So mobile first applications were starting to be developed, you know, the call it 2010, 2011, 12 timeframe where developers realized, hey, I don't want to just shove my company's website into an app. I need to think about it from a first principles perspective. What can I actually build that's mobile first? Well, if you look at crypto right now, we're kind of stuck in that desktop laptop era. And yes, I know there are a handful of wallets and a handful of apps here and there, but we haven't really seen the ability for folks to really... Uh, benefit from from mobile. And this also leads into geos that, that we're actually quite uh, bullish on, which is India and, and uh, areas in Africa specifically. So in like Nigeria, they only have about 38% smartphone penetration adoption. But Africa as a whole has uh, a history of using peer-to-peer payments through mobile devices. There was a project um, called M-Pesa that was launched about 15 years ago because most of Africa is literally unbanked. There's literal, there's no literal banks around Africa for the most part. And so what dawned on them was, hey, what if we could get people to use their their phones and the accounts that they have set up with their phones to pay each other in a peer-to-peer manner or pay bills, et cetera. And it was a wild success. So places like Africa already actually have precedent for mobile utilizing financial services. Well, one step further is now enable crypto in that, and you have a rising smartphone penetration adoption curve in Africa with a lot of additional Web3 and crypto development that's happening there. And we, we actually think you know Africa, places like India uh, as well have huge potential for, for mobile to actually really unlock that next wave of crypto. Joe, doesn't that just mean that stablecoins are the killer app? Well, stablecoins, I've said this many times, it is a killer app. The thing is, is that people don't like it because it's not sexy. I think it's actually pretty remarkable that I can send money to anyone around the world instantaneously on any day of the week at any hour for fractions of a penny. I think the benefit of actually something like, you know, USDC is that it is actually a representation of a real world asset. We've we've heard this narrative pick up steam, I think like every cycle where we want to tokenize real world assets. Well, guess what backs USDC, US Treasuries and Cash? That's a tokenization of a real world asset. So I actually think, you know, whether the you know, eventually I think the stablecoin bill is going to get passed and we've now set kind of the blueprint for how things could potentially work for future world world real world assets. So even though does it sound as sexy as like a oh, stablecoin is a killer app, haha. It's like, actually, it's setting this incredible foundation for, I think, a lot of future world world assets that could be tokenized on chain. Yeah, I don't think it doesn't sound sexy at all. Actually, I think it does. I think it just triggers sort of the anti-fiat uh, crowd, obviously, in the crypto state. Sure. doesn't want to hear that people really just want to send $5 back and forth and don't want to do that with Bitcoin. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, look, at the end of the day, right, like, why was Venmo such a breakout success? Right? Why did PayPal acquire them for hundreds of millions of dollars? 
because it enabled this digital money transfer of thing of the of the unit of account that people are familiar with, dollars, right? It doesn't mean that there isn't a world where we could be using other forms of currency like Bitcoin. I'm a Bitcoin bull as well, but I ultimately think that something like a Venmo is ready to actually be disintermediated or at least improved upon with something like a stable coin or, or other crypto assets. Yeah, I agree 100%. Joey, obviously, I mean, Founders Fund is huge. You guys are looking into the narratives from five, 10 years from now. What What's getting you excited right now? And what do you think could sort of drive the next wave? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're still definitely investing in DeFi. I think it's sort of in a trough of disillusionment right now, but it's it's still one of the areas I'm most excited about in crypto. I think um haven't really seen anything investable in it yet. Um, but I agree there's probably an interesting AI crypto intersection. There was someone, I think it was maybe Tyler Cohen who who published a post about this that's basically like a point nine nine correlation between how, how I think about it. The the sort of TLDR of it basically is that once these AI agents actually work well, today they don't, like you mess around with auto GPT, it doesn't it doesn't really work. But they will eventually in a few years. And I think for payments, if you have these kind of autonomous agents that can interact globally, you know, across hundreds of countries, it, it doesn't make sense to have to like KYC all of them manually. Um, it doesn't make sense to have to like call a bank to do a wire transfer. Um, you know, it, it's still if you had an AI, you know, doing text to speech and speech to text, talk to your bank and then wait 24 hours so it can send money overseas. Um, and I think the last thing is that payments, you know, like, like credit card payments don't work in a model where anyone in the world can spin up some autonomous agent, you basically need um, push payments with, with no charge back. That's actually a, a much stronger feature, not a bug uh, in the case of AI. And so I think like long-term, you know, I, I envision there'll be these autonomous agents basically transacting uh, with crypto, which sounds very out there and futuristic, but I actually don't think it's that far off. I think it's a, a single digit number of years. I think it sounds less out there and futuristic than it did six months ago before everybody saw how fast we could see adoption of AI and, and what how powerful it really is, right? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, and you mentioned DeFi. And I agree, a trough of disillusionment. It's, it's like almost, well, it is literally a four-letter word, but it's almost become figuratively a four-letter word as well. We just recently saw kind of a big move across the dinosaur DeFi protocols in price, Aave, Compound, UD. Do you think that this could be another sort of DeFi summer narrative rolling in, or do you think this is just traders trading? Yeah, I don't I don't really know what, what was behind that movement. I mean I think when when I think about DeFi, it's been it's been in such a long bear market. Um, you know, we don't really do much kind of liquid stuff at at Founders Fund, but you know, my personal portfolio, I'm 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 mostly just long E. Um, and then when it comes to DeFi, you know, I think like I, I'm, I'm kind of just waiting for like the, the monthly trend on that to, to turn positive before buying it. Cause it's sort of been like, if you try to buy it, it's like catching a falling knife over the last three years. How would you define that? Like what, what was Josh? Yeah. Well, re- real quick after I asked Joy, but how would you define that sort of breakout? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I have like some like, you know, trend indicators that I, that I use, but you know, look up pretty much any any kind of trend indicator on on trading view um yeah kind of kind of pick your poison there but i think it's one of those things where like i'd rather buy it up you know 40 percent yeah than ride it back yeah. 70 or 80 percent more especially and i yeah. like that you said versus eth right because as you said you're just sort of holding eth it's not like you're not getting the uh, advantage to the upside in this market yep yeah exactly that, that's how i think about it 
Josh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple things on DeFi. I mean, I think the first thing is that no one's really using it. It's such a small number of users. I mean, a lot of these these large protocols that we talked about have, you know, on a daily basis, you know, not people interacting with the token, you know, not active addresses, not people selling or moving the token, but actually interacting with smart contracts. I mean, most of these large protocols have, you know, anywhere from 100 to like a few thousand users with the exception of maybe Uniswap. So it still is a relatively small user base of people using it. I think the, the other challenge is just the fact that, you know, these tokens don't necessarily accrue value to token holders today. And now with all the securities issues, right, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. Uh, and, and I think there's also, you know, the market, or at least, you know, from, from the institutions that I speak to, there is a belief that DeFi is next, right? You know, they went after the centralized exchanges, you know, they went after, you know, some of the token issuers, uh, and and now it's it's time for them to you know for the SEC to go after DeFi, uh, so I think I think those are all you know there there are still ongoing concerns. So and I, I look I love DeFi I use DeFi don't get me wrong but I think there are still things to be concerned about. Yeah, you talk about them going after DeFi. There seems to be that seems to be the rumor that that will be Gary Gensler's next target. What what does enforcement action versus DeFi does to everyone look like? I mean, is it kind of like the sushi swap situation? Is that the the blueprint? Does anyone have any idea? I'm imagining that's what they go after. But a lot of these, it seems like it would be very hard for them to go after decentralized protocols. Well, D is usually a stretch. (laughs) Yeah, that that, that, that makes perfect sense. Josh, is there anything else that you're looking to for the next trend? I mean, obviously you addressed kind of what Joey said about DeFi, but we didn't get to you for what you think could be the prevailing narratives of the next cycle. I know that this is a little bit, it's not that old of a narrative, but I do think gaming is interesting still. Uh, and I think it's not being talked about enough. Like, obviously, it, it takes a while to build really high quality games. But if you look right now on the Apple App Store, there's a game called Cross the Ages, which is the number one game in, you know, around 10 or so different countries that's built on Immutable X. No one in crypto is talking about that. I think we, we should be elevating narratives like that. Um, and I think, you know, you know, through a combination of, you know, kind of like mobile first gaming, as well as, uh, you know, AAA games. I mean, you speak to some of these protocols, whether it be Avalanche, Immutable, Polygon, they all have four or five or six, you know, AAA games that are either, you know, in the roadmap for the next, you know, couple of months or the next year or so coming out. Right. And I think uh, it will be interesting to see. I mean, if you think about uh, gamers and, and crypto users overlap very significantly in terms of it's a younger generation it's very tech forward so i think i think that's a narrative that, I, that i'm going to continue to to, to watch and I, I think you know that's it just makes sense to me yeah i what's this scott dykstra was that his name who had the booth across from you at a consensus that game was sick shrapnel or something oh nice yeah there's shrapnel there's a ton of there's a ton of a ton of the games you know, Shrapnel is an example. There's another game coming out on Avalanche called Gunzilla. I mean, these are, you know, games that have had tens of millions of dollars invested into that, right? They're, they're real games and they're using, you know, they're using, uh, you know, blockchains for, for NFTs and, and in some cases other, you know, there, there are other use cases as well. But I think it's, it's a really interesting way to onboard hundreds of thousands, if not, you know, millions of users into crypto. Joey, you didn't mention gaming. Is that still on your radar? Maybe that's another trough of disillusionment here. Yeah, I, I think gaming's interesting as well. Um, I didn't mention it just because I, I tend to kind of understand it less. I think for, from where I invest, you know, if someone's building something in gaming, it's sort of like a platform or infrastructure. I think that's interesting. 
versus like if someone's building just like a one-off game, you know, that's, that's sort of like a market that I think it's really hard to think about as a kind of, you know, software investor. Um, but there are people who, you know, have, have made money doing that. I see Simon that you joined as well. Do you have any thoughts or were you even listening yet? <laughs> we were going to, Simon, we wanted to talk to you about Celsius and what's happening with, uh, obviously Solana, Matic and Cardano. Do you have any color on that specifically? Oh, right. Okay. Um, sorry. I just literally, uh, jumped in till, till me in. Obviously I know the Celsius. Yeah. We, we've been talking, we've been talking about the ETS and narratives, but the back half was intended to be talking about, uh, Solana, Cardano and all these assets that could potentially be sold off now, I guess today on Robinhood and then on Celsius and nobody's more on top of what Celsius is doing than you. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, m- months and months and months ago I asked, um, I tried to get everything converted into Bitcoin and ETH while while dominance was low, uh, and they wait till dominance is at all time high, of course, in order to convert it. So uh, uh, they confirmed in the plan today that everything's going to be converted into Bitcoin and ETH. Uh, when we were selling off all the assets to pay lawyers, and um, they uh, were also like selling off lots and lots of assets, so I was trying to get it all in Bitcoin, but uh, they never did it. We could have filled a big chunk of the hole if they had done it, but. Yeah, so there's um a bunch of old so they they they'll pro- they'll be doing an OTC. I doubt it's going to hit the market. Um, uh, if if there's OTC demand, I guess uh, there'll probably be somebody that wants to snack them up. But if it's OTC, it shouldn't rock the market exactly. the way that people are expecting. Yeah, I mean, I'd be very it's surprised because Voyager Voyager did the same thing, right? And nobody even talked about it because it wasn't publicly announced. And then they sort of said, "Hey, we rebalanced." Of course, they also rebalanced when it was uh, when Bitcoin was like twenty thousand and went to almost thirty right afterwards, right after the uh, Silvergate at uh, the uh, Silicon Valley news. So uh, it's clear these guys aren't traders, right? <laughs> yeah, well, the, the incompetence in these chapter elevens is just you know, I, I guess this is what happens when you put a process that's designed to maximize the value for lawyers, where you legalize the process of spending client money for lawyers. Uh, and then you put lawyers in charge of the process, and uh, you you tend to get the these types of things. And unfortunately, that's been the story of all these cases: two hundred million spent on lawyers, um, and they're kind of just starting to do the things that uh, we we were proposing over a year ago. Yeah. So, does this mean that? Celsius is actually coming closer to some sort of distribution or some sort of final situation here. I mean, Voyager actually did to their to their credit, which I hate to give them, release quote unquote thirty six percent of assets back to customers. Of course, that's thirty six percent based on the July twenty twenty two prices and not now. So it's more like a twenty two twenty three percent. But is that? I mean, are Celsius creditors actually going to start to see some assets? And David, I would love your answer too. You know, as the lawyer that was invoked there. Uh, yeah, so the the current situation is we just released a plan. Um, it went through an auction process, um, and now the disclosure statement has been released. And the disclosure statement means um, that we get to actually understand the full plan. Um, and there's two parts to the plan. One part of the plan is where a company, a group of certain people called the Fahrenheit Group, um, are soliciting for us to invest approximately 500 million in them turning uh, it into a mining and staking company. Um, and if the terms of that are not, um, you know, e- exactly what you want them, then there's a backup plan where another syndicate of people will just create a mining company and give everyone in a, what's called a controlled liquidation, everything back. Under the first plan, 
where we have to reinvest in the staking and mining business, we get about 36%. Uh, but remember, that's 36% based upon the dollarized value at the time they file bankruptcy, when Bitcoin was approximately $19,000. Um, so if they, you know, I, I don't think in dollars, I think in Bitcoin. So that's approximately 20% of my Bitcoin uh, that would be coming back. And then if you do the controlled liquidation, you get about all the crypto that's left, approximately 47%. But then there'd be a forced investment in trying to build something out of the mining operation because a billion dollars money was essentially borrowed in order to uh, buy a lot of uh, ASICs at the top of the market. So uh, that's the current situation we're in. And uh, people are going to be deciding whether they want more liquid crypto up front. Um, and obviously, with all the SEC stuff, it's still going to get past SEC. Then it's got to get past uh, anything that happens with uh, DOJ. Um, and I guess the unfortunate situation is it was originally going to be done via a broker-dealer in compliance with securities laws. Um, but now they're not really doing it that way. They're making the assumption uh, that distributing Bitcoin and ETH and various other parts of it uh, won't have SEC issues. But we'll, we'll see how that all goes. I, I don't anticipate getting a distribution until uh, towards at least the end of the year. There's still a few things to uh, settle as well. David, when are you going to start taking on bankruptcy law? You know, Simon and I actually, uh, we didn't meet during the Celsius thing, but we spoke a lot at the beginning of the Celsius thing. I actually, with one of uh, the largest firms in the world, Brown Rudnick, pitched to do the Celsius work. And as part of our pitch, we promise to distribute 20% in-kind crypto within the first six months of the bankruptcy. And needless to say, we got shot down. Uh, they hired they hired the other the firms that are handling this. But I, I, it's bankruptcy is such an odd beast. And everything that's happening are what we always discuss. If the case goes into bankruptcy, the lawyers are going to get paid. The lawyers get paid like ridiculous hourly rates. It's like a blended rate of over a thousand an hour, whether they're a first year associate or senior partner. And here's a perfect example of what happens. And by the way, I love Simon's term, dollarized value. You know, bankruptcy isn't designed to uh, take apart a crypto company. And more importantly, you know, the, do the valuation on the date of, you know, the instance of where it happens. I don't find that to be a tremendous issue because, Scott, you like talking about this also, that it's going back to the value at the time. It's proportional. So while it sounds like more to people who are listening outside, you're never going to receive 100 cents on your dollars. So a a percentage uh, ration, whether it's val Bitcoin's value to the dollar, 10000 or 20000 is inconsequential because it's all a proportional loss to everyone eating off the same pie. But Celsius here, they should be ridiculously pissed off if I was a creditor of Celsius. I would never, and I've said this from day one, and, you know, I'm the least financial crypto person on this town hall, but there's the crypto itself does not generate a yield. There's a five-year plan on the crypto, gener on the mining business, where depending how you value the 200 million lost at petition, I give credit to Keith Chazon for doing the breakout this morning. You know, ultimately, there's they have to come up with about $800 million over the next five years. There's a salvage value of about five, $600 million. 
they're still going to lose $200 million over the five years on this plan, and the extra percentage that looks good on paper isn't going to yield anything to the Celsius investors. They would have been better off getting the 20% up front and taking any salvage value today. Um, I think there are a lot of... Yeah, I mean, if Voyager could have liquidated, we would have gotten like 76 cents on our assets. Exactly. But the lawyers Ridiculous. but the lawyers who outpitched us said, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, and what do you end up with as, an, as a typical bankruptcy person? And you and I have talked about this before. Bankruptcy is changing because of social media. You know, there's an outcry right now on social media for Celsians to reach out to the federal court judge who's handling this before the hearing tomorrow. Uh, federal court judges and white shoe lawyers never used to have to deal with uh, people who uh, were typical people in the bankruptcy. And we're going to see the uh, ad hoc groups do a lot of complaining about how money is being deviated for people who are in the earn program. And I think we're going to see some changes before this goes final. Unfortunately, I don't expect them to get more money back than they're anticipating right now. Yes, it's worse than that, Dave. There's actually a $3 billion hole. Um, and obviously, that's after the, the distribution. Um, they're, they're making the hole sound better because the price of Bitcoin, if as the price of crypto goes up, they dollarize the value and make the hole sound smaller. Um, so they keep the liability at the dollar value. Um, but then they, as the assets go up, they actually, throughout this chapter 11 process, they have sold client stable coins, um, over a hundred million dollars of them. And they call it revenue for Celsius. They take money off the F off an exchange. They call that revenue. They manipulate the price of sell token and legal security for X, the price. Uh, and they call that like additional you know, additional claims that go out during uh, market manipulation that's being that's going to be in court at the moment. Um, yeah, I think the consensus. I don't. I don't know which is the biggest. I don't know which is the biggest scam. Whether it's Chapter Eleven or Mijinsky, uh, they both raped us, dry. Agreed. I want to move on to less uh, horrid topics than uh, Chapter 11s and why the lawyers are collecting all of the fees because uh, this has been an awesome panel and I think we got a ton of insight. But we do obviously want to want to focus on and talk to our amazing sponsor here today link to we got both J joe and ray up they're gonna be talking a bit about what it is we're going to discuss that uh here at length but i definitely also want you to go ahead and follow their account which is l-i-n-q-t-o-i-n-c joe ray guys we got you up here right when we started talking about chapter 11 bankruptcies and last week we had you guys up and i don't know if anyone told you what happened when the spaces usually spaces just crashes on its own but on that one it was i was hosting it and lightning literally struck my house and took out our uh, power and wi-fi so i don't know if that was communicated to you guys but i'm glad to have, have you back ray joe how are you guys doing today scott we're doing doing well hopefully your house is is in good standings here. It, it was in good standing it took us a little while to get wi-fi back but yeah it was pretty great <laughs> It was a pretty. What, what are what what are the odds? So, the 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 some powers above don't don't or some powers don't want uh, us democratizing access to private equity at Link Two, but uh, but here we are uh, resilient and we're gonna we're gonna have a great uh, a space. Thank you for thank you so much for having us up here today, Scott. Of course. And uh, yes, we have Joseph and Doso here in the Twitter space as well. Joe, in order to chat, uh, there's a a mic on button in the bottom left hand corner of your screen. I've got it. There Can we, we go. Okay. Yeah, there we go. Great, great to have you up here. Um, 
Thanks, Ray. Yeah, absolutely. So go ahead, Ray. So just Scott, just want to, we're, we're we're big fans of your work and the team at Link2. We're we're proud to partner with the uh, the Crypto Town Hall community. And uh, again, my name is Ray Fuentes, community director of Link2. Uh, like I, I previously mentioned, we've got Link2's chief operating officer Joseph Endoso up on stage. One of the most smartest and brilliant men I've ever had the privilege of 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 meeting. So. Uh, Joe, thank you so much for making it up here on stage as well. Uh, we, I, I paid I paid Ray in Bitcoin to say that. How do you say it's it's off the book? This is actually you know the great thing about being uh, around last week to listen to you guys was I, I I afterwards I was so impressed I said to Ray that's that was like the the most intelligent chat group I've ever sat in on trip in all these years. I mean, honest to God. And, and one of the speakers today actually has a very special place in my memory, uh, Melton, because I, I remember going to a crypto conference back in 2016 and sitting in a seminar that Melton was teaching about blockchain technology. That was my absolute first introduction. And after that conference and listening to that seminar by Melton, I walked away and said, I'm going to get into that. In the following year, I was part of the founding team for a crypto startup called Bosonic Digital, which I'm still a shareholder in. Um, so that, you know, by, by way of storytelling, I, I like I, I love listening to you guys because, it, you know, I've I've been you know in at least on part of that journey that you're talking about in terms of taking this amazing digital asset technology to commercialization and and, and, and to mass adoption. And uh, it's it's a road that's you know fraught with with challenge, but one that I think at the end has a, has a bright future in front of it. And, and like all of you, I, I am long term optimistic. So link to which I I I, I moved to 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 help uh, build in 2019 is a private investing um, platform that is intended to provide really simple, easy, and affordable access to regular individual accredited investors to, to some of the best private tech companies out there. Um, but we've invested in over 60 companies. I think what's interesting to you is that this is my crypto background. A significant portion of our portfolio ended up getting invested in the, in, in the crypto digital asset space, right? We've made 13 investments so far in that space. Um, Coinbase was one of them. It was one of the six companies we exited during the IPO window of 2021. Um, but we still have in portfolio today companies like, you know, Ripple, Uphold, Chainalysis, uh, Figment, BitPay. Uh, we're just uh, we just closed a transaction on Circle uh, the other day and are offering it on our platform tomorrow. Um, Block Demon is another company, and you know I'm I'm slightly embarrassed to say we we made it an investment in BlockFi. That was one of the losses we chopped up uh, uh, in, in investing in the space. But um, you know we 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 now have on the platform approximately 240 million uh, invested by regular individual investors since we launched in in early 20. And we're continuing to grow that portfolio and we'll continue to be active investors in the digital asset space. We're investing, by the way, in equity, not not in not in the tokens. 
Yeah, I think that's that. That's a very important dis- distinction. I'm just I'm still stuck on the fact that Meltem orange pilled you. Yeah, <laughs> she's a brilliant speaker, as you guys know. I think we all just got a master class from her already today. So, ha- can you just walk me through the process of actually doing this for your average accredited investor in the United States? How do they use the platform? Uh, you know, how, how are you able to do this when people generally don't have access to these investments otherwise? So we do it largely by buying stock in the secondary market, right? Because if you think about it, in order to have product available 24 by 7 to an accredited investor it comes to the platform, um, you, you've got to have inventory, if you will. And, and if you're simply participating or acquiring the stock by participating in, in primary equity rounds, it, it, it can be a long way because you, you may like XYZ company, but they just did a round, which you weren't in, and you're going to have to wait maybe two years for their next round to come along, right? So what we do in that is, it, in order to avoid that timing hassle, is go into the secondary market and talk to early investors, uh, typically, uh, who may want some liquidity for the, the stock that they've held for, for, for a spell. So that can be any, any, anything like a member of the founding team, somebody that's in the C-suite, or one of the early VCs, like, like Joey, right? I mean, you know, we've had situations where VCs want to uh, obtain liquidity in order to realize gains also distributed capital prior to the end of the fund. So we, we, we buy that stock off of them. We use our, we use our own. I just lost Joseph there. Uh, did everybody else? Ray, did you uh, lose Joseph as well? Joe, are you still there? I sure am. Okay, sure. perfect. We, we lost you there for a second. It sounds like your uh, mic something cut. Mm. Yeah. Let me, uh, maybe pick up where I left off. So we, we have put the stock basically in the secondary market, um, Scott, and, and we buy it from founders, uh, you know, C-suite executives, uh, early investors, you know, PC firms. And, and then we use our own balance sheet to make that acquisition. Right? The, the thing about restricted stock also is that it's not easy to transact. It's always subject to uh, the consent of the issuer. It's not freely transferable like registered stock at the public market. So there is a process that's timed out. And typically that can be anywhere from 45 to 90 plus days where the seller and you basically go to the company and request permission to engage in that transfer right, of, uh, of stock from, from the owner to the new owner, from the old owner to the new owner. And, and that transfer is, uh, moreover, subject to something called a right of first refusal that the issuer has and that the issuer can sign to other shareholders. So uh, in, in the event of that exercise, that stock ends up getting bought by the company or one of the existing shareholders that wants a stock and will buy it at the same price that you bid. So, you know, as an outside buyer, I, I can end up in a situation where I sit in escrow for 90 days, and then I end up not having a deal consummated, right? That's not something that a small accredited investor that's putting in five grand is going to put up with. It's just too much brain damage, too much legal fees, too much hassle, right? 
So in order to to shield the small investor from those issues and those risks, we use our balance sheet to front the transaction. Look, oh, that buy a million bucks worth of stock, right? And we split it into an SPV, and then we sell ownership of that SPV and tighten uh, That makes sense. Joe, can I ask you another question? Because I think the, the next natural thing, how do you identify what's actually a good investment that you're going to offer on the, on the platform? I mean, you guys have clearly been early on a number of unicorns. I mean, you mentioned exiting Coinbase at the uh, direct listing, which if anyone looks at the Coinbase price means that uh, you guys had some savvy there. So how do you actually identify the investments that they're going to open the door to for your customers? Uh, we've got an internal investment process, right? And it's a, it's a, it's a, a combination of uh, fundamental research um, using some proprietary data sources that we have as well as uh, doing price analysis in the market, because part of the equation is not just, are we making a fundamentally good investment, but are we getting it at a right price that gives us the kind of risk adjusted return we're looking for to, to deliver to our members. So it, it's a combination of those things, Scott. And you know, anything the, else? Go ahead, sorry. I think the difficulty in private markets is that, uh, unlike in the public markets, I can go through that analysis and once I've identified uh, what I want to buy and at what price, I can just simply execute. Uh, the private markets uh, don't give you that flexibility because what you may want to buy and at the price you want to buy it at may just not be available because right? it's very, very fragmented and every transaction, it's not a centrally traded, you know, exchange traded market. So it's, it's, it's fragmented, it's all over the counter and you actually have to find a discrete specific seller that's willing to sell to you at the price you want. That makes perfect makes perfect sense. So how taking it, step, taking it a step further, Scott, uh, Link Two is comprised with a phenomenal world class team of approximately seventy personnel, uh, and that it. With that being said, Link Two is staffed with what's called an originations team that's dedicated to underwriting these world class unicorn opportunity opportunities before coming to the platform. And how fast is the turnaround for someone who wants to come in? They see an opportunity that they like and they want to invest in it. You, you, you go through the same AML KYC you'd go through with any broker dealer, and then we, we validate your accreditation or your credit investor status. And once that's done, you open your account, you fund it, and you're good to go. Uh, it's literally click to invest. Um, and most of the investing is done on mobile apps. You can do it on your on your on our website as well, but it's, uh, we're, we're mobile first in terms of the platform. So from start to, from, from start to finish, Scott, from what's creating the account to, uh, validating the accreditation process and uploading those necessary docs that that process can be boiled down to less than 48 hours. That's way faster than I expected. That's incredibly fast. That's a, that's 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 our, our motto. Scott is, we've we've created a, a technology enabled investment platform to enable accredited investors globally to point click and invest into private equity, which was you know as Joe mentioned previously this clunky uh, time time times. T I don't want to say times suck, but just a a very uh, complicated process. And so at Link Two, we we've, we've made it seamless to invest in these this hard to reach asset class. And Joe, if, if you don't mind, you know, there's one thing that I, I, I think we, we could 
potentially touch on is, you know, because of link to it and our capabilities of, of let's just say wrapping this equity in these FPVs and link to being the, the entity on the cap listed on the cap table of each of these private companies. Can you talk about the, 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 the friction points that, that we've alleviated because of this processor? Yeah. I mean, if you're a private company, right, you, you have a specific reason for wanting to stay private and, and sort of deferring, uh, the, the, the go public route. And one, and one of those reasons obviously is that you're not subject to a lot of the disclosures and the compliance that a, a public company has, you know, given the tremendous amount of, uh, capital available in the private market for VCs like, like Joey, um, I, you know, companies can remain private for a long time and increasingly they have, right? The, the average company in Silicon Valley today is private for more than 10 years. Uh, and so, um, the, the issue becomes that if, if you're, if, if you're in our business where you're bringing in lots and lots and lots of small investors, that's absolutely counter to a private company's interest in staying private because they can't have a, their cap table, um, basically run out the number of shareholders to the point where they trip the, the 2000 shareholder limit and are forced to become a public company by the SEC and, and have to report and, and, and disclose and do all the stuff a public company does, despite the fact that they're not listing on, on a public So that company wants to stay private and therefore one of the things it's got to do is manage the total number of shareholders on their cap table. So we play that intermediation function, right? Where we're able to allow the the value of that company to to go into the hands of lots and lots of small accredited investors, but we allow the issuer to only deal with us. They don't see any of those small investors or have to deal with them. They deal only with link to. Um, you know, down the road, the interesting thing about all of this, right, in the long, long run, a lot of these structures are going to end up having to morph and change and evolve as a result of the changes to the way the securities world functions in the traditional, you know, financial and traditional financial structures that today govern them. How those will end up, I think, in the long run, being being changed and made more efficient by blockchain technology, right? Where where our forward vision right now, we 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 just started hiring our first uh, cohort of of blockchain engineers. Is that now that we've got a critical mass of asset value and investors on the platform, we're 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 now starting to migrate the platform to blockchain. And the idea is that we're going to end up tokenizing all of these um, investment units and then allowing those units to trade. We have an ATS license as part of our broker-dealer. So we're, we're going to create a, a, a tokenized um, exchange on our platform and figure out ways to also list those same securities tokens on other exchanges to maximize the amount of liquidity that our, the investors can obtain. Very, very interesting. So did I ask you guys, how can everybody find out more and stay engaged with your community? Obviously, after this this conversation, everyone knows there we, we did uh, pin a tweet up above and you can follow link to L-I-N-Q-T-O-I-N-C on Twitter, which we encourage you to do. But w- from you guys perspective, what's the best way for people to check this out? Uh, keep informed about what's coming. 
Great question. Go to Right? Do I answer that? Sure. And, and, and feel free to follow it up, Joe. Uh, late two, not only are we democratizing access to these private investment uh, opportunities, but we're also democratizing access to the information around these companies and the markets themselves. Uh, so one, of course, you can go to link2.com, uh, sign up, create an account, and just have real-time access to private market data points uh, curated by one of our trusted counterparts, CB Insights. Uh, in addition, we have an omni-channel presence. So we're, we're active on all social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, TikTok, uh, Discord, D for all the above. So uh, feel free to look for us uh, across all social platforms as we are continuously uh, not, not only engaging, but democratizing information across all platforms. Joe, do you have anything to add there? Just if you have a specific question or you just want to learn more and you want to get me up directly, just, you know, on my email service, joe at link2.com. Perfect. Well, guys, thank you so much. Once again, everybody, it is uh, tagged right above. Uh, so you can check them out and check check out everything that they're doing. Really, really interesting, guys. I'm actually I've, I've been kind of perusing the platform, looking for investments myself since we uh, since I was introduced to you guys. And it it really is incredibly easy, easy and compelling. Can, can we we just need you guys to you know give us a gentle uh, jab when you've got something that you're really excited about coming. We will. Thanks so much, guys. Absolutely. It. If there's any other opportunities uh, to to engage with with uh, both both communities, uh, Link to and uh, the Crypto Town Halls, uh, would love to pursue and, and uh, participate in the assist. You know, one of your team members said you guys are out in Los Angeles. If there's any way that you guys want to connect in person, I'm a local resident of Orange County. Happy to drive up and and uh, and uh, collaborate. Thank you. Oh wow, that, that that's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm I'm currently in Florida, but Mario uh, Mario and Ran are filming uh, Killer Whales. Uh, the Shark Tank hey, crypto, crypto show out in LA as we speak. That's why they've been kind of popping in and popping out. Guys, that's all we got for you today. Thank you so much. Uh, and to our amazing epic panel, specifically Ray and Joe, guys, really appreciate you guys showing up and taking the time to do this. Of course, we will be back tomorrow morning, 10, 15 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on Mario's account. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, looking forward to tomorrow. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye.